I'm your host, Amber Hollingsworth. I'm an addiction specialist, and I've been helping people beat addiction for more than 20 years now. This podcast is for people who want to know how to get through to an addicted loved one, for people who are tired of being told that they just need to stand back and wait for their loved one to decide to do something about it. Subscribe to this podcast to learn how to outsmart addiction and put this whole mess behind you for good. True or false? Once an addict, always an addict. We are going to talk about if it's curable or not curable. And I'm going to give you a little instruction, a little practical how-to on what to do to get closest to the cure. The answer to the question is yes and no, but mostly yes. Let me explain my thinking behind that. Now, the saying, once an addict, always an addict, it's been around forever. And you can replace any word you want, like addicted to whatever it is. And that can be alcohol or even like the non-substance addictions, any of that stuff. It all applies, fill in the blank. The reason why that statement is true is because once you have an addiction to something, you'll probably never be able to manage that something again. So it's kind of like if you have an addiction to alcohol, even if you're sober like 10 years, 20 years, and you go back to drinking, it's almost 100%, I would say probably like 99% that it is going to be very problematic again in a pretty quick timeline to add to the issue. That's why they say once an addict, always an addict. And And there's some truth in that because from a biological level, you're building more neuroreceptor sites for those chemicals. The more you use, the more of them you build. And that's how the tolerance works. That's how our tolerance grows and grows. And those like monster mouths is what I like to call them. Once you grow them, they don't go away. They don't die, but they can and will go into hibernation if you quit feeding them. And so that's the part where I say addiction is curable. If you starve these little monster mouths out, they'll shut up and leave you alone almost 100% completely. So a good way to think about it might be like we think about cancer. They'll say you can have cancer, but you could also be in remission. I like to think about addiction like it's in remission, like there are no signs of it, no indications of it present at a given time, I would call addiction. I would say it's in remission. And I would say that it's cured at that point. Because I think when we say the thing to people, once an addict, always an addict, sometimes that can be misconstrued into, it's always going to be this hard. I'm always going to want it. My life is just going to be terrible from here on out. I'm just going to be fighting it for my whole life. And that's not true. And eventually it'll die down to the point where you might have like a thought every now and then, oh, that would be nice right now. And it's just a thought that like jumps in your head and jumps out and nothing more than that. As long as you don't reactivate those little monster mouths, you are in the cured situation because eventually most people can be around it and not use. They, it it just doesn't bother them anymore. And you won't see any of the symptoms of it present if they just get away from it completely. Now, Where people mess up is they think, okay, I've been good for so long, I'm cured, now I can go back to that substance or that addictive behavior or whatever it is, and I can pick it back up and it won't be addictive anymore. That is where it does not work. And if I had to say that there is one biggest mistake that people make that keeps them stuck in the cycles of addiction, that is the cycle. That is the hardest thing to convince people of, is that once it's unmanageable, it's probably not going to go back to manageable. In in fact, I don't even want to say probably. I'm going to say 
it's not going to go back to a manageable level. Especially if you're to the point you're watching these videos or you've come to see me or you've went to some like meetings or something, you've probably crossed that line of like, no return. Used to back in the old school days when Bill and Dr. Bob was around, they called it an allergy. And that's also another good way to think of it. A way to think of it is my body doesn't react well to this substance or this behavior, if it's a behavior addiction. All of a sudden I have these allergic reactions and all this crazy stuff happens and it causes a lot of consequence and it does not work for me. So that's another way you can think of it. You can think of it like an allergic reaction. So is it curable? Yes. But it's also important to always keep in the back of your mind that it's there. And remember that, yes, it can be reactivated and it's not going to go away, but it does go into hibernation. Now, that question about whether it's curable also connects to another really logical question, which I think this is a good time to address it as well. And that's, like, do I have to be going to meetings or counseling appointments for the rest of my life to make sure it stays in remission? And the answer to that is no as well. Now, if you belong to 12-step communities, you get these messages about if you stop coming, you're going to relapse. And that's another one of those sayings that's True, but not really. They say that because for the most part, when people quit coming, they do relapse. But it's not because they quit going to the meetings. You know what it is? It's because they forgot what I just told you in part one, which is it's not going to go back to manageable. That's what happens that causes people to relapse. The thing about going to the meetings or the counseling or whatever is it just reminds you that's truth. So, you know, having some way of keeping it in the front center of your mind that it is still there. We want it in the front center in the way that it's like always hard or that you have to give it much attention. We want it to be front and center in the way that you just remember this doesn't work for you. Okay. Like if you have a nut allergy, you have a nut allergy. It's, it's going to be there. Let's not test it because it's not going to end well. That's the part about the going to the meetings or the counseling. Once you get into like maintenance phase of it, then mostly maintaining recovery or sobriety or whatever you want to call it, it's mostly about sanity management. So the things that you can do to help yourself are anything that helps you keep your sanity. So you may want to continue to go to counseling to deal with other stresses in your life, but it doesn't necessarily have to be like focused on the addiction. I think a lot of people in the recovery process get frustrated when they're told you're going to have to go to meetings forever or it's all anyone ever wants to talk about it or their family is like on eggshells about it forever. If they miss a meeting, it's like, oh my gosh, you're going to relapse. You know, they get all like the stairs and the smell checks and all the stuff. But we got to pull that back because most people that get sober and stay sober, once you get past that year mark, it's not like you're home free, but... Once you get past that year mark, I promise you, your life does not revolve around it anymore. It is not consuming your thoughts. It is not even that tempting for you anymore. It does take a while to get to that point. But as long as you don't convince yourself that this time will be different, you're going to be good. And if you need to go to a meeting every day for the rest of your life to remember that, then do it. If you need to watch an Amber video, if you need to listen to podcasts or read books or have a recovery coach that calls you up every day and reminds you, BTW, that's still in there, the monster miles, don't wake them up, <laughs> then you do that. But for some people, continuing to go to the meetings and everything else almost 
reminds you of it in a way that can be activating, as in activating the cravings. So you have to really think about yourself. What do you get out of going to counseling? Do you leave feeling better? Does hearing the stories from meetings and other people's stories, does that help you keep it in the front of your mind? Like, hey, watch out because this is an issue and it's in there and you don't need to mess with it. If it does that for you, then keep going as long as forever if you want to. But if it's a trigger for you, there is a time where people can stay sober and they don't have any active addiction treatment, addiction support or anything. I know I'm scaring you family members to death when I'm saying that. I know I am because y'all are thinking, hey, don't say that because that's what my loved one's going to say. And they're going to say they don't need those meetings anymore and they're good. And I don't want you to say that. It is helpful to have that for a while, but you don't have to have it forever. If you have diagnosed with depression or anxiety today, does that mean you always have depression and anxiety? No. Hopefully, no. You get treatment, you get better, and you move on with your life. That's the whole point. I tell people all the time, the whole point of seeing me is to not have to see me anymore. It doesn't hurt my feelings. It doesn't hurt my feelings when people stop coming to see me because they're better. It makes me happy, right? Because I know that we've done what we're supposed to do together, and now they can move on and live their life. That's the point. So when you're talking to your loved one about recovery, it's important for you to understand that. And it's important for you to even be able to convey, hey, it's not going to be like this forever. It's not going to be this hard. You're not going to have to devote as much time to it. It's just that in the beginning, it does need to be like priority and you have to like do a lot of things to make sure you get them monster mouths to go to sleep. But once you get them good and sluggy, you know, in there, then they're all right. Just don't go messing with them. You're going to be okay. This video is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp has more than 20,000 therapists worldwide, which is one of the things that makes them so easily accessible. That is honestly my favorite thing about BetterHelp, is that you can get access to the help when you actually need it. You guys know that I talk about getting help when you're in that right moment. Timing is everything. And the last thing that you want to do is start calling around to all these different therapist practices and waiting for weeks to get a call back if you even get one. Now BetterHelp, it's not a crisis line. It's not a hotline. It's real professional therapy done securely online. It's so easy to set up an account. All you have to do is go to betterhelp.com backslash put the shovel down. Don't forget to use that link to get an extra 10% off. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P backslash put the shovel down. Jennifer says, I say not cured, but controlled. Yeah, I can say that. Leah, Sonia says, I would like to know the answer. Can it be cured? I'm so tired of my husband relapsing with his alcohol addiction. It's reaping havoc on our family and our marriage. I can definitely understand where you're coming from, but I promise you, Sonia, that isn't happening because addiction can't be cured. That is happening because your husband keeps convincing himself that he can do it differently. And it's frustrating because people have to figure that out over and over again until they like really figure it out. And once they figure it out, it gets better. But they have to keep that in the front of the knowing part of our brain. And when they forget it, that's when it can come back. Let's see. Mad Titan says, girlfriend is an alcoholic, went to rehab last year, still drinks every day, has a 25-year-old adult child that she enables, feeling like living, leaving. Mad Titan, I know you are not in the same, in the boat alone. There's a lot of people even watching right this very minute who can understand what you're saying. Even though addiction can be cured, even though if you watch this YouTube channel and you get a lot of advice on how to fix it, there, there does come a point when you say, okay, I still think this person can be cured, but 
I can't stick around and wait for that to happen, right? There is a time when it is time to walk. But I'm definitely not one of those people who says that you're powerless and there's nothing you can do to help that other person because I don't agree with that. You know, another reason why people feel like addiction can't be cured is because they feel like you hear people say all the time, like addiction treatment rates are so low and we must not have the right treatment or maybe we don't have enough treatment. But I disagree with that as well. Addiction treatment works. There's all different kinds of it and pretty much all works. It's whether or not the person will do what they're taught to do in the addiction treatment. If they do, it will work, <laughs> whichever direction you want to go with it. But it's when we convince ourselves that it's going to be different. I can use this substance and it's not going to get me in trouble. I can now moderate my drinking and it'll be fine. Or I can just do this or I can just do it on holidays or whatever, or just on vacation. It's that thought that lets the door come open for the relapse to come in. And when you mix that thought with some major stressors, now you have seriously bad formula for relapse. But it's not because treatment didn't work. Treatment is effective. It's one of those things you get out of it what you want to get out of it. Sometimes it works and people remember that for a long time and then they forget and they learn that lesson again. Paradise Lover says, my son has gone from alcohol to drugs to different drugs. He's always addicted to something. So for your son, it's like, okay, this drug or addiction gets out of control, but this one's going to be different. Okay, I won't use that anymore, but now this one's going to be different. So he's still in that process. I call it bargaining. You see, this is a old school recovery saying too. My son has an allergy to alcohol. It made him break out in handcuffs. That's been around for a long time. That's old school. I like it though. Star says, my son has been clean and sober from alcohol for over 20 years. I no longer think of him as addicted. He really has put the problem to bed for good. He is blessed and successful. I'm glad you shared that with us, Star, because that's what we need to hear. Because people do get better, long-term better, like way better. And it really does not rule their life anymore. They move on. They function. They do all the things that they want to do. Jennifer says, meetings are a reminder to be mindful. I like that. That's true. Let's see wh says weed is my husband's addiction that's a hard one i don't know if you've seen my videos on marijuana addiction but it's a hard one to deal with because it's really hard to get someone to see that it's causing them problems and there's some other things in there too but it's particularly difficult and she says i see my son and his fentanyl addiction and i wonder how it's possible i believe he can and i believe in him but his fears and he says he likes it can he ever even get to the recovery stage in my mind, if you're still alive, you're still in the game. And everyone that's ever had an addiction would tell you at some point that they liked it and that it helps them. And a lot of times they'll tell you that even when they know that's not true, like even in the later stages. It's that defensive posture that people take. So sometimes they tell you that because they believe it and they're convinced. And then they just keep telling you that because they're just sticking to their guns about it, even when they know it's not really true anymore. Ella says... I've been in active recovery for binge eating disorder for one year, four months, and I really feel like it's true. You stop thinking about it. Yeah, it's like a habit that you break. I don't want to minimize addiction by saying it's like a habit like fingernail biting, but it, in some ways it is, right? If you, once you build all those like new neuropathways, new habits, routines, people, places, and things, it just doesn't control you like you think. And I said before, it's important to let people that are addicted know that because it, it feels like light at the end of the tunnel for them. If you're say you're always addicted, you're always going to have to go to meetings, that feels heavy and difficult and it makes you feel like hopeless and down and depressed. Like, I don't know if I can do this if it's going to be this hard forever, but it won't. It gets easier and easier every single day after about two weeks. It doesn't get easier and easier that first two weeks, but after that it does. Sandy says, my daughter-in-law almost died at 32 from alcohol. 
She's now three years sober and doing amazing. She never went to one meeting after getting out of the hospital. Whatever it takes for someone to understand, you have to let go of this. You have to get it out of your life. That's what it takes. And so for some people, it's just coming to terms with that. For some people, it's going to meetings, treatment, counseling, all of it, whatever. But that's the key is just understanding that. And there's other things like building a life that you like, building other coping skills that come along. But that keeping that thought in there is the vital piece. Hanging out with Christy says, how long should someone stay in sober living? My husband is going to one after being in rehab. It's an hour and a half away. Is it normal to go to sober living far from the spouse and children? Yes, it's fair. It's not uncommon to go to sober living far from the house and children. And some of that is because when you put someone back in their same old environment, people, places, and things, and they haven't really developed all the coping skills they need, it's so easy to fall back with the people, places, and things. The reason that you want to go to sober living is to learn life coping skills, learn how to live life while being clean and sober. And so it's a good thing that your husband is going to sober living. And it's okay for it to be a little distance away. That's going to allow him not to fall back in the same patterns and routines while he builds coping skills. Sober living stays as far as how long. I would say if you're going to do it, I think you should do it for at least three months. Six months is better. And if you're a young person in recovery and you've pretty much spent all of your adolescence and young adult life, I would say if you're in that situation. But an adult who's been pretty functional, probably three months, maybe six months. That's what I would say. But now I'm saying that without knowing your husband. So it's a guess, of course. Jennifer says... Amber, if you have a moment, can you talk about tolerance upon relapse alcohol specifically? It does seem to start over. Yes. Sometimes people even will stop using for a while. They call it like a tolerance break because they think, okay, if I stop using for 30 days, then when I go back, I won't have a high tolerance anymore. It'll be like it was in the beginning. And they're right for about five minutes. It doesn't take long for all of those monster mouths to wake back up. Usually, people are back to the same amount as it was before within a few days, a week max, sometimes immediately. But that low tolerance does not last long. It springs right back to where you left off very quickly. I will say there's one little sort of thing I think I need to throw in there. When you have an opioid addiction, a lot of people, maybe they've been sober from opioid for 10 years, and when they initially first use, maybe they use the amount they used before, and that is very scary. That's what causes a lot of overdose and death. But the tolerance will come back. It'll come back pretty quickly, but it's dangerous if you try to use an opioid at the same amount you used when you stopped, because it does take a minute to wake up all those receptors for that tolerance to come back. It won't take long, though. Trust me. Heavenly Angel says, I have an adult son, 28 years old, who's gotten at least 4,000 out of me in a year. And now I have stopped enabling him and he won't talk to me. He won't go get a job and claims not to be on drugs. As mom, it's like if you stop giving them money and they stop talking to you, it really hurts and hits home to be like, I guess the only reason they ever did talk to me was for the money. But I want you to know that it's not probably, it's probably not really your son driving the show. It's definitely the addiction. It's possible that he's not using drugs and doesn't have a job, but not likely. I don't, I don't know that I would believe that, but that's a total guess. Reading three sentences. DJ's Travel says, question and update. He still has change talk, but he is less communicative and telling me he has to woodshop, in which to him means figure it out. Okay, it's the thing he says. He says woodshop. Okay. I feel pushed away, but want to be supportive. I'm wondering, DJ, if you're saying that doesn't want to talk to you about anything or he just doesn't want to talk about this topic all the time. I think it's important to very purposefully not try to talk about this topic all the time. In fact, I think you should do it in very 
little intervals and for very short periods of time when you do it because it is uncomfortable. It does remind them of bad stuff, especially when you talk about it. If whoever it is came to talk to me about it, whatever they've done hasn't hurt me personally. So it feels less shameful to talk to a stranger about it, somebody in meeting about it, a sponsor, a counselor. But with your family, talking about it reminds you of all the bad things, and it's very uncomfortable. So I don't think you should ignore the elephant in the room, but I also want families to know that like bringing it up all the time is a mistake, and it is going to make the person avoid you. So I would see if you can get them to just communicate with you about regular stuff, other stuff. Work on the connection piece. Robin S. says, I heard from a therapist that an addict will typically trade one addiction for the other. True or false? I did a video probably three weeks back, Robin, and it's called something like addiction is really a hidden superpower. A lot of people that have addictions get labeled like addictive personality. And probably what that really means is really that they're like ADHD and they do tend to be prone to addictions. Most people that have addictions do have other addictions, and that's not always a terrible thing. If it's one substance after another substance, that's not great. But if you can take some of those non-productive addictions out and trade it for something, a more healthier addiction, that actually works in your favor, your superpower and not your kryptonite. So will they always be like 100 miles an hour and enough is never enough and always want more about stuff? Probably. So it's my philosophy to just point that in the right direction rather than try to not be that kind of person. Let's direct that energy instead of saying, well, I'm just going to be balanced. Probably if you're like that addict personality type, you're not going to be balanced and that's okay. You're not meant to be. Melinda says, my son says going to too many meetings actually triggers him. It's hard with that one, Melinda, because a lot of times people say that as a way to get you to get off their back for going to meetings. So they can be using that as a manipulation or excuse, or it could be actually true that going to meetings triggers them. So it can go either way. That is definitely a thing. But also you get out of it what you look for in it, too. There's some personal responsibility in there, but there's some truth in there, too. Becky says, my 76-year-old is that mother-in-law is late-stage alcoholic without interest in rehab. She's moving in with us, doesn't drive. What advice do you have with us about buying her alcohol? I saw your question before. I can't remember if it was in a live or a membership or what. I know I've seen this question before. I think that's hard to answer if she's like alcohol dependent and you like stop buying it for her and she can't drive and get it, then that's quite dangerous. <laughs> so I probably wouldn't do that. I would work on trying to get her motivated to address the issue versus just try to address the issue by like, we're just not going to buy it for you anymore. Because I don't, just saying I'm not going to buy it for you anymore or can't be in this house won't solve the issue, but it will cause a lot of fighting and arguments and actually make her cling to the addiction for longer. So I know it feels like enabling, but I would start with the plan of how do I get this person motivated to make a change? And I've got like a whole playlist about that of videos that you can watch or our Invisible Intervention course is all about that. So that's where I would start from. Just simply trying to restrict access never fixes it. Now, I'll just say this. I also would like mess up your finances, buy it to the point that you're messing up your finances. That's your side of the street. You don't want to do that. Yeah, but you also don't want to be like, well, I'm not buying it for you, like trying to control it. It's your side of the street, her side of the street kind of thing. Let's see here. Reframe this for me. I keep getting cold shoulder from my loved one. I think it is in regards to anger from my alcoholic behavior in the past. How much cold shoulder should I expect? I think what you're saying is basically you have a family member or a friend or something that just hasn't forgiven you and just won't let their guard down. And... 
you will have people like that in your life that just can't move past it. And if you've done your best to change your behavior and you've tried to make an amends and they can't forgive you, that's okay. And that's their side of the street. And if it's a boundary they're setting with you, it's a boundary they're setting with you. I have a video on amends making with that, that I did with a couple of friends a while back, David and Lucas. And they both talk about making amends the process. And they both said each one of them had a sister. It's like everyone else had forgiven them and moving on. But the sister's like years of not forgiving them. Like it took a long time for the sisters to forgive. So some people are just really hurt and it's hard for them to move on. And they just don't want to like let you back in because they don't trust you. They feel like if I trust you, I'm just going to get hurt again somehow. So yeah, it's hard, but you have to like respect people and give them their space. As always, remember there are more resources in the description. There's a whole page on our website of free downloadable resources. You can schedule consultations or email consultations or find out about our invisible intervention. Thanks for listening to our audio, but did you know these episodes are recorded live on YouTube? Join us Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern to participate in the discussion, ask questions, give and get feedback. Any featured links discussed in this episode can be found in the show notes. And lastly, my goal is to spread recovery faster than addiction is spreading, and I can't do it alone. You can help support my mission by leaving a review for this podcast or sharing it with a friend.